Roger Dale, if you have your Bibles, we're back to John chapter 3. And we return now to this remarkable conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And this is our fifth and last message in John 3. And this conversation, we it needed that kind of attention because it's arguably the most important conversation in all of Scripture. And since verse 1 of this third chapter, the interaction between these two have revealed to us some of the most profound realities of Christian truth that really you will find anywhere in the Bible. Remember that Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, he comes to Jesus at night and he's carrying with him what we called the sinner's worry. This man comes full of fear, as you remember, full of anxiety because he's a religious hypocrite and he knows it. He's honest with himself. Jesus called the Jewish leaders hypocrites many times to their faces. He said they were like whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, he told them. They looked right at him, he said, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And Nicodemus knew he was a hypocrite. Because he knew his own heart. He knew that what he was doing religiously on the outside had no correlation whatsoever to who he really was on the inside. And as elevated as Nicodemus was as a Pharisee, remember as Jesus called him the teacher in Israel, it, it did nothing to help him to have any kind of assurance of actually being in the kingdom, of actually being reconciled to God. So this man was worried. As he's nearing the latter days of his life on earth, he has no assurance that he is going to go to heaven when he dies. So he comes to Jesus in the hope that maybe, maybe this Jesus who has come on the scene can tell him what is it that he is missing because he's convinced that Jesus is a teacher sent from God. Remember, he tells Jesus that. He says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, because the signs were so undeniable. So what we have in this conversation, I want you to understand, is Jesus evangelizing a Pharisee. 
the, the enemies on earth who hated him the most. And that's why what is said here in this conversation, in this third chapter, is so important for us as Christians to understand. Now let's start for today by backing way out to a big picture thought process right here. The message of Christianity has always been that when this life is over, there are only two possible destinations for every single human being, and that is heaven or hell. That's it. And trust me, if you choose not to believe that now, and you think that's stupid to think that, or you think that's outlandish, or you think I'm a hillbilly for saying it, or you think it's arcane or it's outdated to believe such a thing, trust me, it will have zero effect on the reality of that fact when you die. So it doesn't matter where you think about it now. And the only way for any human being to escape the literal hell that Jesus preached about more in Scripture than he did about heaven is by faith alone and not by your works. Not by religion, but by believing. It's not about your morality. It's not about your religious devotion or any kind of works whatsoever. The only way to escape hell and enter heaven is by faith alone. Believing. And that has always been God's way. I can prove you, prove that to you clear back to Abraham. Go all the way back. Look at Genesis 15 verse 6. What does it say there about Abraham? Then he what? Believed in the Lord and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And guess what? Nicodemus knew that verse. And many other verses in the Old Testament that illustrate the same truth. He knew the verses about God taking out the heart of stone and putting in its place the heart of flesh, the living spirit flesh he's talking about there. But Nicodemus, Nicodemus was neck deep in an apostate form of Judaism. You have to understand, he, he was devoted to this form of Judaism at that time that had attached itself to the Old Testament and then had also added to Judaism all these rituals and all these crazy works. And when it was all put together, it was no different, big picture, from any other religion in the history of the world Salvation by works, not by faith alone. Faith plus works. Guess what? The Apostle Paul was in that same system, the exact same system. He was a Pharisee. And after the Lord got hold of him, he saw the system for what it was, 
And you know what he said it was? Dung. And I'm using the nice word English translation. And so Nicodemus is honest with himself. In his heart he knew all this stuff I'm doing ain't working. I really am a whitewashed tomb like this man says. And he's fearful. And also he wants what everybody wants. He wants some peace. He wants satisfaction. He wants assurance. He wants forgiveness. He wants joy. He wants hope. Nicodemus wants to be a different man than what he is. And so he comes to Jesus hoping, hoping that this this Jesus, this, this, this person like we've never seen before, maybe he can tell, take me to the next step. And like I said before, he, most likely what he's thinking in his mind, because he's been in Judaism, it's just ingrained in his thought processes. Maybe there's something missing. Maybe, probably what he was thinking is, maybe there's just something else I need to do that I'm not doing. Or maybe there's something I need to quit doing that I'm doing. But Nicodemus never says, if you'll remember back to when we started out the conversation, he never says to Jesus what he's thinking. And he didn't need to. Remember? Because Jesus reads his mind. Remember, Jesus didn't respond at all to what Nicodemus first said to him. He goes straight to the issue of the heart of Nicodemus, what he was thinking, and that just had to totally blow Nicodemus' mind at that moment. I'm sure he just was having trouble collecting himself at that moment. And then on top of that, as we've been studying, Jesus then just devastates all of Nicodemus's religious sensibilities since he was a kid by telling him, hey, in order for you to even see the kingdom, something has to happen to you that initially you make no contribution to. Nicodemus, you must be born again. That has to happen first. And we covered that in detail, what that means. The whole issue of the divine sovereign grace side of salvation. You remember the whole reason Jesus uses the analogy of birth is to prove to Nicodemus and all of us that being born again is not something that you can do. Just like you can't cause your own physical birth. You didn't hear those messages. Go back and listen to them. But Nicodemus doesn't buy it. At this point, he says, remember what he said? How can these things be? And then look at the end of verse 11. Jesus says, you do not accept our testimony. 
And then running parallel to the doctrine of divine sovereign grace and salvation, Jesus goes straight into the doctrine of human responsibility. And we studied the meaning of that in detail. We looked at what Jesus said in verses 11 through 15. Go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it. But let's pick it up for today with what Jesus says starting in that 15th verse. In which Jesus says, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now remember, as I said, Nicodemus is in a state of turmoil when he gets to Jesus. He's wondering what more religious thing do I need to do? What's the final step that's going to get me into the kingdom? And the first shock that he gets from Jesus again is, again, is Nicodemus, there's nothing that you can do initially. You have to be born again and you don't contribute to that. But then there's another shock. And really that shock actually starts in verse 14. Look where Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And remember, that's a reference to the cross being lifted up. And then verse 15, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, what's the shock there? Well, believe could be a shock for Nicodemus, because that's salvation by faith alone. But the real shock for Nicodemus is the whoever. That's the shocker. Because Nicodemus knew very well what eternal life was. All the Jews did. Everlasting life, transcendent, supernatural life, union with God. This is available to whoever believes. That's what's going through Nicodemus's mind right now. The shock is the whoever. Because the Jews believe that when Messiah came, he would save Israel and punish all the other nations and punish them for their blasphemy, and punish them for their idolatry. He would punish them for their mistreatment of Israel, and he would set everything straight for Israel. But now, Jesus is saying, whoever believes. And he says nothing about Moses. And he says nothing about Abraham. And he says nothing about the temple. And he says nothing about the law. He says it's simply about believing the Son of Man who is lifted up. And whoever believes will have eternal life. Now you have to understand. Try right now to just get in the mindset of Nicodemus this lifelong legalistic Pharisee is having a very difficult time at this moment letting this even enter his mind, let alone processing it in his mind. Jesus is saying anybody who believes in him, the son of man lifted up, will escape judgment, escape hell, and be given eternal life in heaven. And this salvation is by faith alone. Sola fide. 
That's our message to the world, by the way. And this salvation is for whoever believes, Jew or Gentile. And that, folks, please understand, is devastating to Nicodemus. In our culture, the word racist is thrown around and used of people in very flippant and oftentimes very false ways. And if everything is called racist, then nothing is racist. I mean, it just gets to be ridiculous with the way that the word racist and racism is used today. Not not to downplay the fact that there's not real racism, there is, but it's just gone out of control in our culture. But if you want to see the example of a true racist, Nicodemus, and all the Jews of that time period. You want to see some true racist? Their hatred of the idolatrous, blasphemous nations of the world was deeply ingrained and settled. Guess what? Long before Nicodemus came along. And he was born into it. Gentiles. Gentiles were blasphemous idolaters. We don't even want to go into their country. We want to wipe the dirt off our feet if we had to walk for five seconds in their area. And while Nicodemus is, is, is still trying to process all of this in his mind, what Jesus is saying about whoever believes, and that includes all the Jews and all the Gentiles, Jesus next gives us the most familiar verse in all the Bible. John 3.16. And guess what? John 3.16 is an explanation of John 3.15. Because Nicodemus has to be saying to himself, why in the world would God do this? Why would God give eternal life to anybody who just believed in him? Why would God not reserve eternal life for the people who kept the rules, his rules, for the people who followed the law, for the people who kept the Sabbath. But but, but wait a minute. Why does eternal life get to be given to whoever believes and not just to the Jews who believe? How can this possibly be? You have to know that's, this is what this man is thinking. And the answer is given in verse 16. For God so loved the world. What's behind all this? It's the love of God. Whoever believes in him will in him have eternal life because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to make that a reality. Now, the theologians, the commentators, both Reformed and Arminian have worked this verse to death down through the centuries. And there have been every kind of explanation and approach 
to interpreting this verse as there is for any single verse in the Bible. So you ready for this? I prefer the simple understanding because I think it's the right understanding. And I'm a simple man. Here's the simple view of John 3.16. With asking the question, let's start there. The simple view starts with asking this question. You look at this verse. What is the motive for salvation? Answer, God loved. You with me so far? Okay. Now this is way beyond the racism of the Jews of that day. I mean, this is way beyond their hatred of the Gentiles. God so loved the world. They justified their hatred of the rest of the world on the basis that this is how God felt. But that's not true. The reason that God makes salvation available to anybody who believes is because God actually does love the world. And that, folks, again, had to be absolutely shocking to Nicodemus. Now, let's break this down. The term world, here in this 16th verse, it's simply a very general term that refers to all of humanity. That's all. God loves in the common grace understanding that we all understand God's common grace to all people, all mankind. Now listen, that doesn't mean that he's going to save every person who ever lives. Because we know there's a hell and we know that there's people who are in hell now and more people who are going to go there when they die. And that's pretty clear because two verses later, as we're going to see in verse 18, he talks about people being judged because of their unbelief. But we had not got there yet. There's only one world, one realm of humanity, despite what you're seeing in the news lately. And God has determined to set his love on this world. And God's love shows up across the world in common grace and gospel invitation to the whole world. The Bible says the rain falls upon the just and the unjust, right? I want you to just think about this for a minute. Think about the fact that with both believers and unbelievers, people fall in love, people have children, people enjoy all the beauty and the wonderment of life in this world. There are many who are very wealthy and live out their whole lives at a very high standard of living who reject Jesus Christ all the way to their very last breath of his air. Unbelievers and believers alike enjoy vacations. 
and good food and music and the beauty of sunsets and mountain ranges. And many people have great success in life. Many unbelievers amass great power in their lives and great riches. And there are so many wonderful things that God has placed in man's care. And they are all evidences that God has a general common grace love for all humanity. And guess what? He doesn't owe anybody anything ever. But look at all what he does for so many people. In fact, all people deserve his wrath. And on top of all the good things that he gives all people to enjoy on this earth that he created, he also gives them gospel opportunity. He also reveals himself to all mankind in creation. You can go outside and look at that glowing ball of fire in the sky. That's always on time when it rises. And it looks like it's rising, but we're just rolling around it. He's revealed himself to all mankind in conscience. And eighthly, every atheist knows when he lays his head down at night, there's a God. He's, He's written his law. On every man's heart, the Bible says, God has made himself accessible to to human reason so that you can look at the world around you and you can determine by what you see, there has to be a God behind that. There has to be a designer behind that. And you can know and understand something of his divine power and his eternal nature just by looking outside. That's Romans 1. But beyond this, love that God has for all mankind, there's a special love that God has for his own. And they are found all over this world. Revelation tells us from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation on this earth. So this confined racism that was true of Nicodemus and the other Jews of that time clearly is not a reflection of the heart of God for all mankind. Think about how totally sideways the the theology of Nicodemus really was. He can't earn his salvation. It has to come from heaven as a sovereign work of God, not of man. And beyond that, God loves a world that he hates. And God makes salvation a reality by faith alone. When Nicodemus always thought it was by works. When we look at John 3.16, look at it there. We see the motive is love. You see the object is the world. What's the action? He gave. Right? His only begotten son. Now, only begotten son. We better get that straight. What does that mean? That's oftentimes misunderstood. This is definitely not begotten in the physical sense, as the Mormons and some other people believe, okay? In the Greek, it's monogenes. Genes is a Greek word from which you get genetics. Mono is one. 
And what this actually means when you put monogenes together is unique. One of a kind. The only one. That's what only begotten means. So it's much easier to understand this when you understand what it means. His unique son. His one of a kind son. He, he says, this is my beloved son. There's only one of this kind of son. Okay. And then next, when you see the word, so, look at that word. God so loved the world. That means to the degree that, to the end that, in this way, God so loved the world. And to what degree did he love the world? To the degree that he gave his only son. In other words, the extent of his love is measured by the extent of his gift. He gives the person that he loves the most, the son of his love. And that shows to you and to me the extent of his love. And then we also see the means of salvation in this verse. Whoever Believes. That's the means. Belief. Believe what? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that God raised him from the dead on the third day. Believe in who he is. Believe in what he did on Calvary's tree. Believe the gospel, the person and work of Christ. Think of this. The free offer of the gospel is broad enough to include the absolute worst sinner who believes. It doesn't matter how rotten you are. It doesn't matter how wicked you are. But also, listen to this. The gospel is narrow enough to exclude the most moral, religious unbeliever. You get me? Now, Think, think on a secular tip here. Who do most people, if, you, if, if they're sitting here thinking about in their mind, both secular and religious, who do they think of right now as the most moral religious man on the planet right now living? You're right, Daryl, the Pope. Most Americans would say that. Most people across the world would say, well, who's the most moral man on the planet? Well, it would be the Pope, but... The Pope is trusting in his faith plus his works, his merit to get him to heaven. Now you can put aside all his leftism and his climate change and his wacky liberalism. The fact that he's trusting in his faith plus his works excludes him from the gospel excludes him from saving faith and I'd be happy to debate you on that and the reasons why but on the other hand you're thinking about that on the other hand the most corrupt wretched person on the planet a person like I was before salvation I was a very corrupt person before salvation 
who exercises saving faith in Christ has this gospel that is wide enough to fully and savingly embrace him. Embrace me, for heaven's sake. And what is the result in verse 16? We'll keep looking in verse 16. Whoever believes in Christ shall not perish. Perish in the Greek. Apollomai. Many times in the New Testament, used for eternal ruin, refers to hell. That's the negative. Shall not Perish. And then look next, the positive, but have eternal life. So when you put all this together, the message of Jesus is, hey, you need to be born from above. And that's a work of God that you don't participate in. But anybody can be saved who believes and there's no other way. And why would God do all that that way? Because then he gets all the glory. We get none, no glory for us. We don't get any glory till we get to heaven. And it's all the glory that he grants. He gets all the glory for our salvation. And it wasn't God's anger against sinful, rebellious humanity that motivated the Father to send His Son to the world. It was His love. And that thought connects us next to verse 17. Look what it says. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So what that is saying is this, what it's saying to the whole world for all time is that Jesus came the first time not to judge, but to save. Christ died for sinners from all over the world. God sent his son to display the glory of his grace and his mercy to save them from his wrath. We, We talk about being saved. Are you saved? Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from who? Saved from God. That's right. And it was his love that motivated him to save sinners who don't deserve salvation from his wrath. The purpose of Messiah's coming was not judgment in the first coming. Now the Jews... The Jews all expected the Messiah to come and judge all the other nations of the world. That's what they were waiting for. And then Messiah came. And they rejected him. And they killed him. And he wound up judging them. And at the same time, his coming opened up the gospel to the ends of all the earth. Now, Next time he comes, he will come in judgment. That is second coming. The likes of which the world has never seen before. And if you're not right when he gets here, woe be unto you. And then next we come to verse 18, which says this. 
He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, first, I want you to notice he who does not believe has been judged already. You want to know what the key word in that phrase is? Already. Now, God by nature is a Savior. Christ by nature is a Savior. Believe and you will be saved. Believe and all the charges that you are guilty of will be wiped away. The Bible says you come into a status that can be defined this way. Full pardon. No commendation. Rescued from the curse of the law. Cleared from all guilt, declared righteous, not infused with righteousness, declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ. Granted eternal life never to be removed. But on the other hand, if you don't believe, Jesus just said you have been judged already. Because you have not believed in the unique monogamous son of God. Now, let's get down to what this already means. It's very typical of so many people in the world to say this. Ah, preacher. <laughs> You're some kind of zealot, dude. You're just taking all this way too far. I'm living my life. I go to work every day. I hadn't killed nobody. You know? I'm faithful to my wife. I, I really think I do more good than bad. I, I said thinking of most American people, and and yeah, I, I think if God is keeping the records, I'm going to be okay because really my good does outweigh my bad. Really, when I sit and think about it, and so many Americans have that very mindset for their theology just ask around at work. You'll probably find somebody very quickly that believes that way. And, and, and that's why every single solitary time without exception when their relatives die, they get to the funeral and you go to Ravenhorse and every time, no matter how the person lived, they say, oh, well, at least they're in a better place. Yeah. Every time. I've never been to a funeral in my 55 years where somebody said, yeah, well, he's in hell. Never. And I've been to some funeral of some wretches. I've preached some funerals of some wretches. The gospel. To which some people were not very happy when I got finished. Okay? But here is the truth that so many people just cannot handle. The issue of your good outweighing your bad is totally irrelevant. And it's irrelevant for this reason. If that is really your mindset, then what you don't understand is that you have been judged already. That's what Jesus just got finished saying. And you want to know when the gavel fell? When you arrived on this planet. You arrived here as an unbeliever. 
You arrived here spiritually D-O-A, dead on arrival and not believing in Christ when you got here. The gavel fell and the verdict was rendered and the sentence was passed. And so nothing is being determined in terms of your good and bad. Listen, there's nobody up there counting your record to see if your good is outweighing your bad. You have been judged already, Jesus said. You were judged when you were born. You were judged not only as a descendant of Adam and born under the curse, but also you were judged already as an unbeliever when you came out of the womb. Nobody's born believing. And that's what this 18th verse is saying. He who does not believe in Christ has been judged already. Just let the weight of that sit down on you. God knows everything. He is well aware of all your crimes against him. But that has nothing to do with the verdict because the verdict has already been passed. The divine judge has already ruled. The gavel has come down and you have been sentenced to eternal wrath. You better understand what happened in that garden. That's not a metaphor. Everybody loves some John 3.16. They hold it up in the end zone under the field gold at the football games. But nobody wants to keep reading past 16 to get to 17 and 18 and following. Yes, indeed. We're going to get there too today. The judgment was passed for everybody the moment they arrived in this world. And many people just can't swallow this. I get it. I'm here today to tell you, as the preacher, it's the truth. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing when you present the gospel to somebody to use the law, as the Bible says, as the schoolmaster to drive people to Christ, to show them their sin in their breaking of God's law. It's a very good thing to do that. But guess what? Every single time a person has broken the law of God, no matter how many times they have broken the law of God, all of that is forgivable if you believe. Every one of those sins, all of your sins, past, present, and future, can be forgiven if you believe on Christ's terms. But if you don't believe, that sin will never be forgiven. You understand? And that's why it's far more important to address the issue of what you do with Jesus rather than your breaking of the law. Yes. Okay? I'm not downplaying the use of presenting the law to show a person their guilt and their desperate need that they have to be saved and why it is that they're guilty. But if you don't believe savingly in Jesus Christ, you will die in your sins and go straight to hell when you die. That's the one unforgivable sin. When you ball everything down, it really all comes down to one thing. Folks, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with him? There's only two choices. Either you believe him or you reject him. That's it. 
Being agnostic, not being sure, that's rejection. Believing a false Jesus of the cults and all the false Jesuses that are out there and not the Jesus of the Bible, that's rejection. Being indifferent is rejection. Making up your own mind of how you think Jesus is supposed to be, that's rejection. It really is overwhelming to think about the fact that for all human beings alive on this planet right now, their entire eternal destiny, their entire eternal reality forever hinges on one thing. What do you do with Jesus Christ? And with the incredible seriousness of that, you have to say, why do so many people reject Christ? Why is it that you can't get your family members to believe in Jesus and believe the gospel? Why do so many people in my circles of influence, in my family, in my workplace, in my Monday to Saturday life, why do they not believe? Well, guess next in 19 and 20. That's where we're going to get the answer. You ready? Get ready for this. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The primary reason that people don't believe in Christ is because they love their sin. They love the way they're living. They love the way they're living apart from Christ. They will not have that man to rule over them. They don't want to come anywhere near Christ because he shines a light on them. And he exposes their sin. And sinners love their sin. It's not ignorance. It's not lacking the basic faculties of reason. It's not misunderstanding. Naturally born sinners prefer moral darkness at all its varying levels. And there are many levels of moral darkness. From the Pope in his moral darkness to any very highly religious person outside of Christ, but very moral on man's terms, moral darkness, to the most wretched serial killer and all points in between. They're all levels of moral darkness if they're apart from Christ. And Nicodemus is proof of that. And like roaches, they run for the darkness. When you turn the light on in a filthy kitchen, you ever done that? If you've been in a dirty house, I've been in some seriously dirty houses in where neighborhood I grew up in, North Baton Rouge. You turn that light on, them roaches go scattering. Not my mama's house. I'm talking about the dope house. 
You shine that light, them roaches scatter when that true light, that true light shines into the moral darkness of the natural man and they are exposed for what they are. They run from that light as fast as they can. That's what I did till the age of 28. I ran from that light. I loved the darkness. I was way down. You couldn't even see me. I was way down in it. They hate the light. They resent the truth. They resent the Bible. They don't want to hear nothing about no Bible. They resent the church. They resent Christian people. They run from us. They hate and oftentimes mock our gospel message, right? And it's getting worse and worse in America every day. Now, let's, let's do a little practical application before we close for today. In light of what we've learned, and totally opposite of what all the church growth experts have to say, it's really totally pointless to try and appeal to the lost sinner psychologically. It is really pointless for you to go to somebody and say, do you want peace and purpose in your life? Well, who in the world doesn't want that? Jesus will give you purpose. Jesus will give you peace. He'll, he'll make you happy. Jesus will give you a better life. Uh, 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 let me tell you something. Listen very carefully. All those things are true, but we don't get to understanding those realities and how they work biblically until after we're saved. That stuff is for after salvation, peace and purpose and all the rest. But if that's your approach with a lost person, the most you're going to get out of that person is a false convert, if that's all you're giving them. Because that approach sheds no light on the sinner's sin. I mean, we, we, we got to shiny teeth preacher down there in Houston, he never says the word. Ever says the word. Right down Interstate 10. The toothpaste works good, but the message is from the devil. Okay, and it uncovers nothing when you don't shine the light. That What you want to do when you're talking to somebody about Jesus is shine the light on the fullness of Christ in his gospel and the righteousness of Christ on the lost person and their natural condition and then see what their response is to that. Will they run, will they run from you? Or will they believe? The issue is confront them with what they are in their natural condition and and if they run they will just seal their sentence by rejecting Christ because they will just prove to you that they they love the darkness rather than the light now you might plant a seed and it might happen down the road but at that moment they're still loving the darkness rather than the light Or at that moment, by the sovereign grace of God, they will run to the truth. They can't get to it fast enough. Because look lastly at verse 21. But he who 
practices the truth comes to the light so that his deed may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In other words, God did it. God did the work. Here's the deal. At Providence Baptist Church, every week from 9.45 to 12.30 or so, we turn the light on bright. Okay? In this room. I mean, it's at maximum wattage today for sure. And if you got something to hide, I'm telling you, this ain't the place to be on Sunday morning. And you know, well, we're all very honest about ourselves here. Ain't no highfalutin religious people up in here. And we roll with the truth of the word of God and what it says about us. And we say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, that is me now. And when we come to church, we actually want the light to shine on us. We want to be convicted as we're struggling with our flesh. Because in practicing the truth, as verse 21 here says, the light shines and we take a look at ourselves and we say, man, what is going on in me is definitely something that had to be wrought by God. I mean, look, I can't explain my life any other possible way than it was wrought by God. And there is so much comfort and assurance in that. Because we're honest about ourselves. That left to ourselves, we would still be running as fast as we could be running from the light. Left to ourselves. But the fact is, we weren't left to ourselves. God, as the old deacons at Foster Road used to say, invaded our lives. And it changed us into people who love the light. And we understand why John Newton called grace amazing grace. And we believe with all our hearts all of these mind-blowing realities of this third chapter of John like sovereignty and responsibility even though we can't reconcile it in our little pea brains and judgment which are all so repugnant to the natural man. We believe it wholeheartedly because we've come to the light. We've come to the light on Christ's terms of repentance and faith. And now we have no fear of judgment because Jesus took our judgment. And now there's only total eternal security, true peace, true joy. What a message Nicodemus got that day. He never even asked a question. Do you realize that? He just had his mind read by the king. And as we learn later on, he did become a believer. He, he speaks a word of defense. We saw that later in, in, in a very precarious situation for him in the seventh chapter. He stands up for Jesus. And then in chapter 19 of this gospel, 
he shows up with Joseph of Arimathea to bury his Savior. And if you believe, incredibly, you will be with him in the presence of God forever in God's eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus and (laughs) sovereignly on purpose, not only ordained before the foundation of the world for Nicodemus, but sovereignly ordained and written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by John for all of the church to understand and to know and be exposed to. Wow. How great is that? How more deeply have we learned about you and about Christ and about how salvation works from just this one conversation? Lord, I pray you would put it deeply into our hearts and minds that we would make application of it and that it would enable us to live even more fiercely for Christ as we leave these doors today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.